Hey, I'm Kathy Walker from the Girls' Day School Trust, the GDST. We're a family of 25 girls' schools across the UK. We were founded by women for girls 150 years ago, and to this day, we remain experts in educating and inspiring girls. On each episode of Raise Their Up, we welcome guests who are experts in their fields to share their insights and to create the ultimate guide to raising and empowering girls, women, and everybody else. On this episode, I'm talking to author, presenter, shepherdess of a thousand sheep and mother of nine children, Amanda Owen. Look at the heat we had this summer. We're fortunate. We're quite a wet farm. The land is wet. But the impact that is having on food production, on farming, on nature is unbelievable. I just don't know how we're going to sort of turn that around, really. It's difficult. Amanda shot to fame when she and her family appeared in Channel 5's Our Yorkshire Farm with 3 million viewers per episode. Known as the Yorkshire Shepherdess, Amanda is also a best-selling author, presenter and photographer. Her latest book, Celebrating the Seasons, is part memoir, part recipe book and continues the story of her family's life throughout the year on Raven Seat Farm. From the GDST, this is Raise Her Up and this is the Yorkshire Shepherdess, Amanda Owen. And I think again, one of I the thought, things what's going through her? That's what we're giving, isn't it? As a hell, we're giving our love. <laughs> Raise her up. Amanda, welcome. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much for inviting me on, Kathy. Let me start by asking you, where are you today and how is it looking? Um, we're recording in October and I know that autumn is a very important season for you, isn't it? Um, season for beautifying the sheep, if I remember rightly, and getting them ready to sell. Is it a busy time at the moment? It's a very busy time. There's quite a lot going on. We seem to have almost lurched headlong into freezing winter temperatures. Beautiful sunshine today. It's a bit of a flood. But it's Monday. As usual, I'm up against it. I have got so many different things going on at this very moment. I feel like I'm spinning plates. That's what I'm doing. Yeah, I can relate to that. (laughs) That's a really interesting start because I spoke to some pals and to my mum over the weekend to say that you were going to be on the pod this morning. And I just had the most brilliant reaction. So I told my mum and my mum said, oh my God, she's the most remarkable woman. She's so calm. She's so resilient. And she always looks so good. Then another pal said, ask her about her skincare regime. Um, and another woman said, I can't cope with three kids in a tank full of tropical fish. How on earth does she do it? Well, that's really, really sweet. But I think I'm I'm always very sort of mindful of the fact that everybody has their own set of parameters which they work in. Anyone who ever says to me, oh, you know, how do you do it all? Well, I don't. And that doesn't mean that I've got an up pair hidden upstairs or like an army of farm workers. What it is, is I suppose if you're going to say parenting, my parenting involves getting the children to be very independent and do things for themselves. And some people are horrified yes. by that and think that is the most terrible thing ever. But I think it is absolutely great because they are a part of a big family. Obviously, there's nine children. That means there's nine children. There's a lot of things going on. There's a lot of stuff to do. And therefore, I throw it right back to them. And every one of those children, Mm. right from the littlest who is now six, is involved in some way in being responsible for themselves. I mean, of course, I'm there to oversee. There's me. There's Clive. I've actually got Reuben and Raven. Raven's been back this weekend. Reuben's 18. Mm -hmm. Raven's 21. So two of them are officially grown up. But I've always sought for them to be independent and to be able to be a part of what we've got going on. I don't do helicopter parent, I'm afraid. Never in the last 20 years have I ever got down on my hands and knees and like done a jigsaw with them, ever. 
I mean, I couldn't get down on my hands and mm. knees. There's that many bits in here, to be fair. <laughs> they come with me. We go walling. We do things together and we do things independently. And that's the only way that it could ever work. Plus, I've also just prioritised what's important. Are the kids all right? Have they all been bathed? Have they all had the hair done? Have they all got school uniforms on? Have they all done the homework? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's it. I'm not into competitive parenting. I'm really fortunate to live where I do that in that I'm not looking over my shoulder I'm looking at the bigger picture does it matter that the place is covered in bits does it matter that I actually found a slug in the downstairs bathroom sink this morning where the hell did that come from it doesn't it don't matter does it right huh? no no it doesn't no for what it's worth I always get slugs downstairs um where I live as well so don't beat yourself up about that either no. can I ask you though Amanda um yeah, as you just said, you know, your your kids, they have such a rich life. They play musical instruments, they do their homework, they get great reports. Raven got first from university, you know, they they've but they still managed to carry out their chores. Um, and you have said, you know, everything we breed up here, whether it's children or sheep, is exceptionally hardy. And, you know, we've seen the evidence of that um on, on TV and in your books. But what are we missing off camera? You know, do you, are there ever any tantrums? Are there, is there ever any of them saying, oh, oh God, not today, Mum, I just don't want to do this today, don't want to do this? Do you know, there really isn't. I'll tell you what you have missed this morning. Three of them went to school without coats because we can't find them. I thought if you're hardy and resilient, <laughs> too bad. And, and there you go. Obviously, we're not like the Waltons, but I'll tell you now, everybody's got each other's back. Yeah. I mean, anyone who actually comes here and sort of sees firsthand how we are, Yeah. there isn't a face. Mm. We just are exactly as we are. But they are good kids. Mm. I went to do a talk at Scarborough. So I'm at this big fancy theatre. There's 400 delegates there. And I took the three little kids with me because Violet decided she wants to have a baking day. She wants to spend a whole day cooking because that's what she loves doing. Edith went off to see her friend. Um, Miles, Reuben and uh, Sydney were doing some repairs to a tractor that they're, they're on with. So everybody knew what they wanted to do. So I took the three little ones with me. And of course, I'm getting prepared to go on stage in front of these 400 delegates. And I've got three kids, one who's six, one who's seven, and one who's eight, or maybe nine. I can't quite remember. But, <laughs> well, it's true. I can't remember. But the thing is, I said, oh, um, go and see what you can find. Go see if you can find yourself some lunch or something. And off they went and they toddled off, found the way around. They came on stage, said hello to the audience, came off the stage. And whilst I was after I finished my talk, they went round the front to the auditorium and started selling books. And I mean, that's without me. And the best conversation I heard was somebody say, I want to buy a book. Do you do you take cards? And the oldest one, Annie, actually said, we do take cards, but cash is king. <gasps> <laughs> was that your proudest moment? Oh, I'm dead proud of that. That's brilliant. The point is, I want those these kids to learn about the real world, because people long ago go, oh my God, your kids don't grow up in the real world. They live in some sort of fairy tale utopia, Nirvana. And I'm like, no, 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 it's not like that. You get you get to see it all. You get to have the rough with the smooth. You do times with no water. You do times with no electricity. You do times with no internet. When you go out the door, there's no connection. When you're inside, you've got connection. You get to see blood, guts, all the rest of it. Do you know what? I think those are the best life lessons you can give kids. It's not not the real world. It is the real world. They won't stay here forever. There's nine of them. I'm the person who's here sort of at all time lifting them up and saying, you can do that. You can do that. You can do that. 
So we're a, a family of schools and we are always thinking about ways to prepare our young women for the future and for, you know, for, for a future that is very uncertain for jobs we don't know exist yet. How did you come to be where you are? It was all accidental. There's never been any planning in my life, not even any family planning, obviously. <laughs> it all began, I suppose, with the idea of being able to communicate, being able to talk to people. We live on what's billed as one of the most highest, remotest hill farms in the country. So who do we get to speak to on a daily basis? It's the walkers that are coming through. The walkers who are coming mm-hmm. through would have questions. They'd want to talk. There's just a small dog. <laughs> no, two small dogs. Sorry. No, they sorry. can join us. Come on. Come on. Here we are. Sorry. <laughs> so so the point is there was always chat going on it was it was a little sideline it was the first very sort of small farm diversification it was how can we sort of add value to what we've got here we're living here on the farm we're in this isolated place but we've got these walkers coming through so decided it would be really simple to sell people a cup of tea the walkers come through between may and october and they just wanted a cup of tea and to sit down and have a quick chat so that's what I would do on a daily basis. That conversation was what led to eventually one of those walkers who turned out not to be a walker was a researcher for the Dales program and said, do you want to be part of a fly in the world documentary program called the Dales fronted by Aid Edmondson? Yes. There was no money. It was literally just, do you want to be a part of this kind of, well, it was slow television, fly in the world documentary, watch it with your nana. She's not going to get offended. <laughs> it, it was good. So we did that. That went on for three series. And then I was asked if I wanted to write a book. And I thought, don't know, never thought of that. I read, but I'm not a writer. I got an E in English at GCSE level. So What does that mean, though? <laughs> I was just uninspired. There was nothing at school mm. for me. I just was the daydreamer. Mm-hmm. I was the person yeah. when Friends Reunited was on, nobody ever remembered. <laughs> yeah, but there's loads of kids still. They're not bad. They're not good. If you're not causing any trouble, quite often you're just overlooked. Yeah. So I was asked to write a book. Um, I thought, well, nothing ventured, nothing gained. I wrote on a piece of very far paper that very proudly that I had 962 Twitter followers. Oh. <laughs> I liked reading James Harriet's books when I was a kid. That was it. I wrote a book. It nearly killed me, the process of it, because I didn't, I, I mean, literally it was like the, a baptism of fire. I bet. Can we have 80,000 words? And you can't even equate that to what that actually is on paper. But you've written five books now, though. I mean, how by book by 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 your most recent one, the Celebrating Seasons. Does it feel a bit more like second nature now? Oh, you never get used to it. It's always a struggle. But I'd never sort of dissuade anyone from doing it or giving it a go. Nobody wants to sit there and think, "Oh my God, I'm so interesting." I don't think that at all. There's nothing orderly about my life at all. That's what I write about. You refer a lot to your relationship with the land and 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 to nature, and you refer to the beauty of your surroundings, Swaledale, um, and how you document this outstandingly stunning place. And I, I've really enjoyed reading about your pragmatism and your authenticity when it comes to um, eating meat, for example, how you eat the meat that you raise, and how skilled you are at foraging, how you eat seasonally. Um, you also mentioned the impact that people, that human beings have had on the land. For example, your, your chapter about gripping and, the, and, and draining the land and, and the impact that's had. And also terrifyingly, miles falling into one of those ditches, that just really stayed with me. And I wondered if you kind of woke up sometimes going, oh, 
you know, thankfully that you heard him. But let me ask you about your your views around environmentalism and climate change, because we are hoping to broadcast this episode around the time that COP27 will be taking place in Egypt. And it would be really brilliant to hear from someone whose life is so in tune with nature and with her surroundings. I mean, the thing is, obviously, things have changed, even in the short term of the last 20 years of being here. We're seeing more extreme weather conditions. I mean, for us, winter is winter. We live, we have a little bit of a microclimate up where we are in the hills at this altitude. So winters are supposed to be cold. They're supposed, it's supposed to be freezing conditions. The animals are very adept at coping with that. We're on native bred Swaledale sheep. They can withstand that kind of weather. But what we're seeing now is sort of weird weather conditions that are really affecting our farming and nature. In other words, I have my children swimming because it's like hot in February. They're swimming in a river. And then I have snow coming on the lambs at the end of May. Also, that is creating havoc with the migrating birds. The birds are coming back too soon because they get a sniff. They think that spring is here. They come, lay their eggs, then it snows on them. Then they lose the whole hatch. Nature goes through its its cycles. And yeah, there's always been sort of certain weather patterns and certain conditions and freak weather patterns. But now literally, it feels like every couple of weeks, you've got another name storm coming in. It's, there's more flooding. Well, I mean, look at the heat we had this summer. Oh, it was terrifying. I mean, I'm not going to complain about that because I needed to make hay and you have to make hay whilst the sun shines. But we have never, ever here had temperatures that soared like that. There was not a breath of wind. We're fortunate. We're quite a wet farm. The land is wet. So we were able to stand. We didn't drought like a lot of places. Yes. But the impact that is having on on sort of food production, on farming, on nature is unbelievable. I just don't know how we're going to sort of turn that around, really. It's not good for flora and fauna, but it's also not very good for for business, let's be honest. It's difficult. Are your kids engaging with this, the, the climate action movement, because they see it firsthand? Yeah, they have to be. They should be. They should be very mindful. A lot of the work that we undertake on the farm is with sort of the long view. You don't see yourself as being here in ownership terms, you see yourself as a custodian, right? And so much of this place is as it always was. You're working the view and we want to look out and preserve what there is. So when it comes to the the wildflower meadows, I take the kids out there. I want them to immerse themselves in it, but I also want them to be able to share it with other people. It's not ownership. It's not ours. It's about striking the right balance. I mean, you could. Talk, it's a shame, really, that it's we're doing this on a Monday because I would love you have to talk to the the kids about this because then you mm. would have got their opinion as well. I mean, we've talked about mental health, physical health. I need these guys to be passionate about it because it is about next generation. It is about, to a certain degree, preserving and looking at the heritage of how a place like this has evolved. Places like this are becoming few and far between. They're becoming a rarity. 97% of Mm. British hay meadows have disappeared since the war. So coming somewhere like this is an oasis where you've got triple SSIs with um, globe flowers and devil's bit scabious and you can hear it buzzing. Mm. 
this sounds all very holistic. It sounds all very kind of like new age, but it's all part of the bigger picture because if you get the balance of a farm like this right, if you have the right number of cows, then they're producing the right amount of manure. That's what goes on the fields to, to fertilize the fields. There's no nitrogen coming here. There's no pesticides. There's no herbicides. Mm. If you can get the balance right, if you have the right number of cows living here and you're making the right amount of muck to put back onto the fields, you're taking one crop of hay, no plastic, okay? Mm -hmm. You can strike the right balance. You can do nature. You can do food production. You can do farming. You can do tourism. But you have to get this balance right. Yes. The balance isn't the same on every single farm. Mm -hmm. You get to know your place. And you get to know how it works and you're always trying to improve upon it. So the drainage ditches, we talked about the grips at the moor, that is an ongoing process. That is not going to happen overnight. But if we can make those moors wetter, the kids go up there and they bounce on the totterbox because they're like, it's like standing on a wave. It's quite terrifying actually, but it's full of sphagnum moss. It's bright green. The kids are wading through it. They're poking through it. This is how we, we want it to be. They have to have that enthusiasm. If we don't give them that enthusiasm for these places, they swim in our rivers. So they go in the rivers. We've got a town, we've got waterfalls, we've got rivers, we've got caves, we've got scree slopes, we've got all that on our doorstep, right? Now, the fact of the matter is, that's what everyone wants for their kids. They want their kids to be able to swim. They want their kids to be able to run, play in fields. They want them to have fresh air, fresh water, all the rest of it. Now, the fact of the matter is, because we take enjoyment in that too, then you're not going to throw your crap in the river, are you? No, well, you shouldn't. Yeah. You go down there and we go with the cameras and I say, come on, let's take some pictures. Let's take, take some pictures. Look at all the frogs. Look at the tadpoles. We had um, the Environment Agency out three weeks ago and they do something called electrofishing. So they come and they put an electric current in the water to temporarily stun the fish. doesn't hurt them and see how well the river's doing. The kids love that. That's kind of like showing you that you're getting somewhere. When we heard the cuckoo, we're like, we've got a cuckoo. We've never heard a cuckoo. That is the first cuckoo coming back. I saw a black grouse this morning. They're an absolute rarity. They're standing there. It was like squaring up to a few pheasants. I was like, ooh. This sounds like it's reassuring. It is reassuring. But the problem is we're just, we're just one, aren't we? Plus also you have to look at what people want. They want it all. They want, they, someone could come to us and say, oh, well, you know, you should be farming it harder. You should be working it harder. You should be producing more food. That comes at a cost, though. For every person who wants food on the plate and high welfare and of a good standard, okay, mm. you'll have somebody else come along and say, oh, well, actually, I think, yeah, I think you know, that the, the farm should be rewilded. Yeah. But, you know, that's a person of privilege who maybe has enough money in their pocket that they're not busy stressing about other things. So a balance. In each episode of Raise Our Up, we speak to a member of our GDSE community to get their take on the matter being discussed. And today we're joined by Sarah Padali, who is Head of Sustainability for the organisation. Last year, we achieved carbon neutral certification for the first time in our history. So how much carbon we emit through our activities. 
And we needed to start looking about reducing that before we reach the offsetting stage. Uh, because offsetting is all about what's left over from our carbon emissions. And we offset it by financing projects around the globe that will take that same equivalent amount of carbon we're emitting out of the atmosphere. But before we get there, we need to start reducing it. And the first step we took is actually start reducing electricity consumption in the sense that we are now procuring renewable electricity. And what's left from that, we tried to offset by financing projects that take the amount of carbon we emit out of the atmosphere. And that is projects such as mushrooms in Chile uh, that uh, improve soil quality. By doing that, we are certified via third party as carbon neutral. So we can say that we've actually balanced that amount of carbon we emit. And that's a yearly process. So we're going to repeat that this year. And this year we've invited all our students and staff to help us select those nature-based projects. We do find that connection with nature, so caring about our natural environment, actually is fundamental in dealing and processing a problem like climate change. We are currently at early stages of a design for a, a new junior school in Notting Hill and uh, Ealing, and we are hoping we're going to achieve a building that is fully naturally ventilated, so we won't have any cooling or mechanical ventilation. We designed the building so that air flows through from one corner to the other, and from that side all the way up. The air flow creates temperatures that can be sustained at comfortable levels. And we've also just completed a junior school in Sutton. And we were so proud of what our landscape architects achieved there in terms of bringing that outside back in and giving uh, the junior school children this outdoor classroom so they can learn and understand that nature is part of their everyday life. And nature is really fundamental into our everyday living and learning in, in a school environment. I'd be really interested to hear you talk to us about the bond between you and your animals. There's a really moving passage in the book, Celebrating the Seasons, when you talk about your sheepdog, Kate, and how you need your sheepdog to instinctively know what's happening. And in this case, she went off and she found two newborn lambs that had disappeared. Talk to us a little bit about what those animal relationships mean to you. Well, you do. People always sort of create a sort of natural division. They're like, either you have an animal as a pet or you're a farmer. It's not as cut and dried as that. If you had no affection, if you didn't care, what would get you up in the morning? You're sort of acting as their guardian for six months of the year, the sheep in particular. They, they don't need me. They don't care about me. They go back to the mud. They live their best lives. Once it comes to the beginning of the shepherd's year, September, then of course they're looking they're looking to be shepherded right through until they lamb. Now, that particular time, was it was at lambing time. We were up in what we call the allotment. And I mean, people think about fields as being, you know, square, uniform. These are 100-acre undulating allotments with cliffs. And you, you can literally walk around only some of it. You can't, you can't travel around it in a wheel vehicle um, because it's just steep. So it's a perfect place to lamb sheep naturally. Because again, it's that striking the balance. If I just put a picture up of sheep outside and it's raining or snowing, people go, oh my God, those sheep should be in a building. If I put a picture up of a <laughs> building, people go, factory farming, they should be living naturally. Yeah. It's a no-win situation. So we lamb outside. If the weather is on our side, then it's all good. But this time in particular, we're lambing in the allotment 
And it's natural, it's open, there's places where they can shelter. But of course, that brings with it its perils. You know, people talk about factory farming and how awful it is. There are dangers and perils when you're lambing outside naturally as well. And one of our big perils is, of course, water and um, drainage ditches and, and grips and holes. So this particular day, we'd been going around our sheep in the allotments and we had a yam. We could see she'd lambed. She had, you know, around her tail. She was, she was all bagged up and there was blood and we knew she'd lambed. We knew she'd lamb, but couldn't couldn't find the lambs. And I'm not talking about doing a fingertip search of sort of a postage stamp area of grass. I'm talking a vast tract of land. It's so frustrating because it's like looking for a needle in a haystack. And I was standing at the top of the allotment. The sheep was giving me no clue because just like people, some sheep are very attentive, would never step away from the lamb. Other sheep are like, don't know where where he's gone. I'm off. See ya. Got other things to do. <laughs> and this sheep, rather more of that ilk. So I'm standing up at the top of the allotment and the wind was blowing and I'm looking and Kate was literally standing by my side. And I mean, she's getting on now. She would, she'll be 13 this year. She's slowed down a bit, but she's very bright, very intelligent. And I can, I can read her like a book. I know what she's thinking, and I think she can read me too. She knows what I'm thinking, and I'm standing there. And believe it or not, there is no command for a sheepdog that is like, hang on a minute, can we just be quiet and see if we can actually hear if there's a lamb somewhere about? That that command doesn't exist. And we're standing there and standing there and literally just heard something. And I'm standing still. I don't know if you've ever done it, if you've stood sus and you're focusing you're trying to listen so hard and I looked at Kate and I could see because her ears was pricked and she was looking so I was just watching her and she headed off a way down in front of me and she's got a nose to the ground and she's looking around and basically down in front of me as I'm scuttling down this slope like literally skidding on my backside down this slope she's going down into this gutter there's like a hole in the ground it's full of water in the bottom there two lamps Clever girl. Yeah, it's little wins like that. It's that sort of moment where it's like... Yes, yes, yes. And you know what? Another time it doesn't end as well as that. You don't know stuff. We had a cow calf. We had a cow calf at the moor. We don't know where it went. Mm. It's inspiring. Totally and utterly infuriating. Yes, I bet. I bet. So, Amanda, tell me, what's next for the Yorkshire Shepherdess? What do you still want to strike off your bucket list? I've got a bucket. I ain't got a bucket list. Um, I don't know. Honestly, I guess I'd like more time. Oh my God, I'd like more time. Right. When you manage to find any of that, can you let me know? Yeah, exactly. There are, you know, that's, that's the thing. Someone once said to me when the kids were, were younger, when those kids are older, you'll really, really regret having a big family. Okay. Yeah, exactly. And that was truly said to me. And you know what? I think I maybe love it more. Watching them grow up, I think it keeps you young. It keeps you inspired. It keeps you strong. I think probably this is the best time, really, as the kids are growing up. Of course, it was great when they were little, but now it's just different because you're seeing their their characters and being part of their next adventure too. Yeah. Life's never dull. I don't. I don't know. You couldn't have made up what what has happened to us. They say the truth is is stranger than fiction. 
to watch this space and see what happens next. (laughs) (laughs) It would be easy to see Amanda Owen as a popular figure from a Channel 5 show that is a real crowd pleaser and everybody loves watching. And she is all of those things, but she... It's also a real heavyweight. It was a real privilege to hear her talking about the land and about us being custodians of the land and the need to you know, generate this respect and this interest in future generations. It was also really important to hear someone like her who lives it every day and sees the impact of the climate crisis and of the changes in the environment on her day-to-day life and work. And it makes me think that we need more people like Amanda Owen making policy, making the rules and having greater influence. Thank you for being here with me for this episode. And remember that you can subscribe or follow or whatever you do to get your favourite podcast downloaded so you don't miss any of Razor Up. Join me on the next episode of Razor Up when my guest will be Emmy Award winning investigative journalist and GDST alumna Ramitha Navai. So I was there as an Iranian journalist, even though I was writing for a Western newspaper because the Iranians don't accept dual nationality. So I realised there were amazing stories that weren't being told, stories that the Islamic regime didn't want its own people to know. And of course, I haven't been told you can't come back, we'll arrest you. There was an article in an Iranian hardline paper calling me an imperialist Zionist spy. That's never a great charge. I'll see you then. That's what we're giving, isn't it? As a hell, we're giving our love. Raise her up.